I invite us as we're able to stand for reading of the gospel lesson. This morning our gospel lesson is taken from the gospel according to John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. Here now a reading of the good news. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that, that, that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it is good to be here with you this morning as we continue our sermon series, Epiphany. And today we're considering what it means for God to offer this epiphany of Jesus as the Lamb of God, which is a, it's a confusing and complicated title, a confusing introduction to Jesus. As we think about this um, epiphany of Lamb of God, I, I, what I thought about my own identity and what it means for me to understand and to grow in my understanding of my self-identification. One of the things I want to point out is uh, psychologist Eric Erickson describes and defines um, identity as the search for a meaningful existence, including a meaningful identity. People seek to compose a more or less integrated tapestry of meanings, beliefs, and values by which they can make sense of their own experience and find guidance, purpose, and hope in their living. Such worldviews are shared with others and have the power to bind persons to communities of shared interpretations. That's how Eric Erickson understands identity. I understand identity from my own experience, just like you understand your identity from your own experience, from your own worldview, your, your reflection of yourself, your, well, how you perceive yourself. 
That's important. It begins at an early age. Our parents, our family, our dearest friends, those closest to us begin to tell us who we are, who they hope we will become, who they hope we are. And we take that on. I did. When I was a child, I looked at my father. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to, to be built like him. He, he was 6'3". I could play a lot of basketball at 6'3". At 5'9", five, 5'8", five, I'm limited to the 5'10 and under league. I looked at my grandfather. I looked at pictures of him. He was a, a strong man. He, he was an engineer on a tugboat. He was a fisherman. He worked with his hands, and, and, and he dressed like a like a workman. He wore, always had khakis on and a white shirt and, and these dark brown or black, uh, what my dad called brogans. They were Oxfords, lace-up shoes. And, and I, I, I wanted to be like him, so I would dress like him. And maybe that would help pave the way to be, to be more like my grandfather in many ways. And in some ways, I am like him. I'm built more like him. He was 5'8". He weighed about what I weigh. He looks about like I did. But the similarities began to drop off from there. When I went to college, I learned more about myself as my, my worldview, my lenses were continuing to be formed and to be uh, adapted to experience, to maturity, to education, information. And so my view of myself continues to adapt and continues to grow. In college, I learned a lot about psychology. As a college major, that's what I read. That's what I did. That's what we talked about. And so that began to inform my self-understanding. Others come into life. Other people, important people. When I met Leanne, she came into my life, and that she helped shape and form my lens of self and lens of the world. When we were engaged to be married, we started premarital counseling, and the associate pastor was doing our premarital counseling. Her name was Catherine. And Catherine said, I want you guys to, to take this test. It's a personality test. And I want you to take this test and read this book about your different personalities. And then that will kind of inform you. Then we'll talk about how these personality types relate to each other and how you live in the world, how you perceive yourself. We'll talk about how accurate you think they are and how what, what interests, what shocks you, what surprises you about your personalities. So we took the test home. She did her test. I did my test. And, and they came back complete opposites. I mean, at every point, we were opposites. I tested out as a strong INFP. And she tested out a strong ESTJ. We were at odds. And so we came and sat down with our associate pastors. That's great news. I'm like, we are completely at odds here. Did you hear what he said? She says, no, you're going to compliment each other. But you have to learn how to compliment each other, how to help each other, how to, how to navigate life together as opposites. Your strengths will be her weaknesses, and your weaknesses will be her strengths, and, and you can work through this. This is great news. As it turns out, when you read the book, the book is called Please Understand Me. It's kind of a famous book, and, 
And uh, as, we, as I read the book, it, I, I was known as a quester or a crusader. I like that. I like being a quester or a crusader. She was uh, the administrator. And Catherine called her my anchor. And she will anchor the quester down, root him, root her, so that I can go and explore, dream, and chase, but always be tethered to reality. That's helpful. It's helpful to understand that. One of the things that has been most helpful for us in our relationship is that to understand that I am a strong introvert. Not as strong as I used to be, but still fairly strong. There was a, there was a time when I was a, a young man, I, I would never have stood here. And, and spoken out loud. In fact, I, in this crowded room, in this crowded room, I, I would have been as far in the back of this room as I could get in, to blend in with the brick. That's what I would have wanted to do. To stay out of all the commotion. To let me just, just let me be over here out of the way. Let me be in the quiet and the stillness. That's how my batteries get charged. For Leanne, she wants to be right in the middle of it. The more the merrier. Charges her batteries just by more and more people. We have to learn that's helpful for her. It'll help our relationship for her to be around people. It'll help our relationship for me to not be around people all the time. And we've, like I said, over time with experience and maturity and with, with just life itself, my lens changes of who I am. And then my, my, my identity changes a little. The baseline is still there. I'm still an introvert. Leanne will always be an extrovert. But we're able to navigate a little better. So that's how, how we, I, I understand myself. And one of the critical points in my life in understanding who I am came in seminary. We had to take a course that was called Contextual Education. And in Contextual Education, it's a year-long course and they assign you to some setting, some ministerial setting that you're not familiar with, that you're not comfortable with. It's a foreign context. And you go to this setting every week for about four to six hours a week. And then you come, you gather once a week to talk about it. Oh, and you get to talk about how uncomfortable you are, how uneasy you are, how you have failed. It's great. So I was assigned to a nursing home and to a uh, geriatric, a psychiatric hospital. Those were my assignments. It was horrific. I was afraid for my life. Throw this introvert into a, a, a room filled with people in commotion. Filled with people who may or may not know what's going on. There were people who were doing all kinds, they had no idea what was happening. But all kinds of conditions. The only instruction that I got, the only instruction anyone gets in contextual education is this is where you're going to be. The only other word I got is stay away from that guy, he will yell at you. <laughs> That's the only help I had. And so every week I'll go and spend four to six hours in this environment. And then I would sit down with my class and my mentors 
and we would talk about what it was like. What did you do? What did you say? Where did you sit? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why did you sit there? Why didn't you get up? Why didn't you walk around? Why didn't you say this? Why did you do what you did? Would you do it again? In the back of my mind, I was thinking the whole time, I don't ever want to do any of this again. I don't know why I said what I said. I don't know why I sat where I sat or did what I did. It was available. It was there. But that wasn't enough. Push further. Push deeper into yourself. Push to understand more about who you are, where you are, what you're doing, why you're doing, who you're doing it with. This is, these are important questions. Not just for a young seminarian or an older seminarian, but for all of us. As we gather to understand ourselves better, who we are, and more importantly, who we're with. Who we're following. This is an important part. This is a powerful part of this gospel passage this morning. In the Gospel of John, beginning in verse in chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, we have what, what is called the prologue. And this is where the gospel writer kind of outlines, lays out his broad view, the big picture of who Jesus is and what's happening. And in this prologue, in these 18 verses, we have this cosmic Christ. The absolute essence, will, wisdom of God made flesh and on the earth. In the flesh, walking around with us, talking with humanity, living on God's creation. Beginning in verse 19, the gospel writer gets into the story, into the plot. And he gets into the plot by introducing a man named John, the baptizer. John is in the Jordan Valley and he's, he's baptizing and he's prophesying. He's proclaiming God's word. And people are gathering around. People who are, who are interested in him have a lot of questions about John. Who is he? How does he understand himself? What is his worldview? What's his view of God? And as people gather, some are even more Curious, and they become students, disciples. And they linger with him to learn from him, to hear his understanding, his worldview, his, his theology. But others come and they ask questions of, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Which he says no to all these questions. So the gospel writer introduces his story by introducing us to John the baptizer who tells us who he is not. And then he points and he says, I'm the one who comes before he who lived before me. I'm the one who's pointing the way, the one who's more powerful than I am. Well, that's strange. And so as we were gathered there on this, the banks of the river with, with John and his disciples and this mass of people, John the baptizer calls out, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's an odd statement. In fact, it's only 
It's only made twice in the Gospel of John. And it's in the passage we've heard. Both instances are in this passage. What an oddity. The Lamb of God. What does it even mean? We're not sure what it means. It could mean any number of things. And maybe it means all of these things or some combination of things. It may possibly be the he may be referring to the Paschal Lamb, the, the, the offering of the Lamb at Passover that we were introduced to in Exodus that the Jewish people celebrate every year at Passover. Maybe that's, maybe that's the Lamb of God. Maybe it's the, well, maybe it's the suffering servant. That we find in Isaiah chapter 53. I invite us to hear this powerful image. Now, now keep in mind what John is doing. What John is proclaiming. This is the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the earth. This is on the, on the heels of this prologue. The cosmic Christ. Who comes to save the whole world. Isaiah chapter 53. Beginning in verse 3 reads like this. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will, I will allot him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Maybe this is the Lamb of God. Maybe the Lamb of God is the Lamb we find in Revelation. This cosmic Lamb of the eschaton that will rule like a King of kings and Lord of lords. We're all will worship. And bow down. Maybe that's the Lamb of God. We're just not real sure. It's an odd introduction. But a powerful introduction. To the Christ. To Jesus. The second time that, that John the baptizer says this. We're told that two disciples are there with him. And as they hear John say this. He begins to follow. They begin to follow Jesus. And Jesus, hearing their voices or hearing their steps, turns and sees them and says, What are you doing? What do you want to know? Where do you want to go? And they, they say, Well, we want to know where you're going. We want to know where you're staying. And he shows them. 
This is where I'm staying. This is what I'm doing. Follow me, Jesus tells them. It's a powerful moment as Jesus is introduced in this gospel. As the Lamb of God, disciples of John the Baptizer follow Jesus to discover the Son of God. Introduced as the Lamb of God, they find the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The one who will make clean the earth. The one who will take away the sins of the world. This is a powerful moment. And it's a way for us to kind of grasp how Jesus identifies himself and how the disciples identify Jesus and come to identify themselves as part of his community. A community that identifies with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as they follow Jesus throughout the rest of the gospel, we'll find the disciples learning more about God more about Jesus and more about their relationship with God and what God is doing. They'll see wonderful, powerful signs. And when Jesus enters his passion and he is crucified on the day of preparation when all of those Passover lambs are being slaughtered, they get an idea. They're given a revelation and an epiphany of what it means to be the Lamb of God. And when Jesus is resurrected and the Holy Spirit is passed on to those disciples, they have a deeper, broader understanding and epiphany of what it means to have the Holy Spirit rest upon them, empower them, and bring them together as a community. Community has beliefs, it's principles, ethics, and a faith that is framed and shaped and formed by the Lamb of God. So as we follow, as we hear the, the prophet, the proclaimer declare that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I pray that we are curious enough to follow. To follow and discover the Son of God who is taking away the sins of the world through us. One by one. Individual by individual. And maybe that will help shape our lens to help understand ourselves and understand the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.